Morning, Don. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Morning to you. Well, afternoon. Good morning. morning. Well, afternoon. Absolutely. So where are you right now? Are you still in, in Hong Kong? I'm in Hong Kong. I'm in Yes, yes, and it is now uh, just around six o'clock. It's getting. You know, I, I wonder, uh, Don, and you know, w- one thing that I, uh, w- whenever I talk to people, so unfortunately, you know, I have um, endeavoured to learn as many things as I possibly can. So I've always enjoyed music. I, I uh, spent many, many years of my life kind of dedicating myself to the piano and to the and to other musical instruments as well and stuff like that. And but the one thing that has always kind of eluded me is linguistics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've always tried, you know, I can kind of just about speak a bit of Italian. I speak my mother tongue as well, um, uh, which, which is, is Punjab- which is, uh, which is uh, Punjabi and Urdu, um, you know, but, but uh, really outside of that realm, I can also understand a bit of French, you know, thank God for GCSE French in the UK. Uh, but uh, uh, outside of that realm, I find things uh, very, very difficult to, you know, learn proficiently. Uh, and whenever I talk to people, I'm always, uh, you know, both two people is artists and linguists. I'm always very, very fascinated with because those are the two things I'm terrible at. Um, I think you always admire people that you wish you had their skills Absolutely. and talents. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I kind of look at people and I think when I start talking to them about languages, the one thing that they say, and I, I'd love to get your opinion on this before I start absolutely ravaging your mind on your book, is... People always say English is the language is 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 a language akin to, you know, like Neanderthalic language. It's fairly simple. Uh, there's not a lot of expression available to kind of, you know, talk about particular things. If you can, it becomes very, you know, very particular and very uh, monotonous almost. Um, however, if you compare it to a language like Japanese or, or Cantonese, where you have these kind of, you know, uh, these tone differences for the same word and you have 12 different words for the for midnight um you know it's or, or or 17 different words for different shades of black um you know i i wonder what what's your impression of people who kind of you know view english as this fairly simplistic way of communication and and other languages potentially a, a more advanced or more eloquent way of communicating i don't believe that I don't believe that at all. And I think that if you learn English as a foreign language, you realize how difficult it is. I mean, spelling in English is just beyond. Nobody can spell in English. Even even English speakers can't spell in English. But also just learning the different nuances of words. Um, I think, I I mean, I, you know, I I grew up in the United States, but I moved to Sweden in 1980, which is a very long time ago. And, you know, I I, I speak Swedish, so that's my, my, what I speak to people in Sweden, but all of the Swedish speakers, many of them speak excellent English, excellent English. But the reason they speak it that way is because there's no dubbing in Sweden. So anything shown on television, anything shown in the movies, it's all subtitled. And if you grow up with that as a child, you're not reading the subtitles, you're just listening to it. And also, of course, the music industry is very big in places like Sweden. And they, even Swedes who speak excellent, excellent English, still find English a very, um, I, I don't think I'm misrepresenting Swedes who think that English is a, is a, is a more elegant and more um, nuanced language than many Swedes find Swedish. I mean, again, that's just a hit. Swedish, sure. of course, is just uh, you know just as elegant, just as rich as English. But I've never actually heard that English is deficient 
um, in the way you were describing. I certainly don't think that. Um, and, you know, I don't think any language can be described as deficient. Well, I, I mean, I know no language can be described as, as, as deficient. I think if you don't know the nuances, it's because you don't know the language well enough. Um, one of the things that I've learned since I've been to, to Hong Kong, and that has fascinated me about a language like Cantonese and Mandarin as well, is exactly what you're talking about, the homophones. So all of the, you're not the same word for many things and very different tones. So the same, the same combination of words can mean different things. I saw just the other week a, a French movie called Titan, which won, um, I think it was the Director's Award in the Cannes Festival last year. It's a very weird movie. It's about a woman who gets impregnated by an automobile. Um, oh my goodness! Yes, uh, I yes. I've, I've, I read a review of this where I think the review on Roger Ebert explained during the Cannes Film Festival. I think forty percent of people removed themselves from the theatre during this particular scene, <laughs> this love scene with the car. Right? I, get, I remember reading about this. Well, it's a it's a typical French film. I mean, there's a lot of gruesome murders as well. It's about somebody invading a bourgeois household and killing everybody. French French <laughs> love those kinds of movies. I think that that's when I read. But I watched the movie. But the, the, my Cantonese friend, who I saw the film with, told me afterwards that the translation of the title can either mean something like, um, you know, chasing desire or changing a spare title. No both way. Both of which, yes, both of which fit this movie because <laughs> it's about a woman getting impregnated by a car. So I, 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 you know, that to me was just the brilliance of the language, which I still regret not having access to. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so, but again, I think that you know, all of these languages have their own, their things, and you know, they're, 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 all, they're all beautiful, and they're all very, very complicated. And I think that anyone who thinks, oh, that language can't do that, just doesn't know the language well enough. I mean, well, the mm -hmm. language that you know, we're going to be talking about, Tokpisim, uh, which I you know, speak in Papua New Guinea, which millions of Papua New Guineans speak, is a pidgin language that arose in the 1800s. It has a limited vocabulary. It doesn't have a massive vocabulary, nothing to compare to you know, English or Cantonese or Japanese or French, nothing. But the nuances are in the speaking. So you can basically, you know, you can't, I don't know if you can talk about chemistry because then you have to report a lot of words, but you can talk about most things that most people talk about quite adequately and indeed very poetically just by, by using some voice, by using gesture, by using the words in different combinations, and you can do that. So I think that even a language like Tokisic, which again, you know, has a, a much more restricted vocabulary than any of the other languages we've been talking about, I, you know, you can do, you can basically do anything in that. So, and that's of course the joy of learning languages because you get to express things differently. You get to express things in different ways with different tones of voice. When I speak Tokisic, um, to my partner, who also has learned Tokisin, we have it as our secret language. When we speak Tokisin, people think we're arguing because it's, it comes across as being quite aggressive, but we're not. But and that's what that, that, that's what makes that's what makes it great in a relationship because you can you can bicker in a language that sounds like you're really really fighting, but you're not. Um, 
people, you know, people code switch a lot. I'm sure that when you speak to your parents, you must code switch between, you know, uh, Urdu and, 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 and English a lot to do different things. And people use them. People use languages in different ways. Indeed, indeed. In, in fact, so my, my, my fiancé, so her family speak uh, Urdu and my family speak Punjabi. And kind of colloquially amongst uh, amongst the communities uh, that are split across Punjab and Pakistan, uh, the, the, the kind of philosophies around this is that uh, Urdu is, I guess, kind of more akin to Mandarin, I guess. It's kind of a more traditional language. It's the original language, uh, you know, aside from Hindi. Um, and it's something that sounds more poetic. It sounds more elegant. Um, it's um, something that the academics in Pakistan will always use. An academic in Pakistan will never find themselves ever using Punjabi. It's kind of a language of the working class. Um, okay. That's how it's kind of viewed. So it's almost a status thing for them. Um, and it's so funny because there's these entire jokes based around if you speak Punjabi, you are of a lower caste right. Um, right. than those who speak um, right. Urdu, which is which is very interesting. Um, uh, but then again, uh, the way that it's viewed now is if you're with your friends and you want to relax and chill out, you speak in Punjabi. But if you're addressing an elder or you're in a formal setting or something, you speak in Urdu because it's just a bit more respectful. It's got that kind of, you know, it creates the, the, a, a particular type of environment, an atmosphere. Um, so I, I totally get the kind of thing where it needs to be kind of, you know, symmetrical to what you're trying to achieve. Exactly, exactly. I mean, people use language to do all sorts of things. I mean, one of the one of the things that I think most people who listen to this will recognize is the is the baby talk register, which you use talking to babies, talking to dogs, and also talking to your lover. You know, you will talk, you will, it's like, oh, you're so cute, you're so cute, you're so cute, I love you so much. You say that to your, to your baby, your baby, your dog, but also to create intimacy with your lover. Um, and so, you know, people, people, and that's, that's just one of the great things about, about language is that people use it to, to do exactly what you're describing. You, you can create a register of formality by using a particular language or a particular dialect. Um, you can create a register of informality, an atmosphere of informality by, by, by people talk, say, slang. But again, and you, when you talk to your family, even when you're speaking in English, you probably use a different kind of English when you speak to your, yes. your parents. I mean, you'll notice that when people speak to their parents on the phone, you know, they'll be speaking to you in whatever, whatever sociolect, whatever register they're talking in. But as soon as they start to, you know, the phone rings and, and they talk to their parents, and you notice a change in their voice. You notice Indeed. a change in the tone. You notice a change in how they how they phrase things. You notice a change in everything. And that's that's what that's what being a human being means. <laughs> you can you can understand that through language you create different kinds of of atmospheres, different kinds of relationships, and that's that's what that's one of the things I love about language because you see it and you, you, you know, many people don't understand they do it. So many people do it unconsciously. And you can point and say, wait, you just started speaking another language or you just started speaking a Southern dialect. I didn't know you were from the South. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, And, you know, people do it without thinking. And that's what makes it so great. Um, it really does, it really does tell, it, it's under the level of consciousness in many, time, many ways. I mean, oftentimes it's not. If you're speaking, as you say, if you're if you if you want to be if you're giving a lecture at a university, 
you know you're not going to speak Punjabi. Although I can imagine that some Urdu speakers might stick a joke, you know, insert a joke in Punjabi um, into that into that kind of lecture to make a joke. Um, so again, people do that. I mean, they do it all the time. Fascinating. You know, it's, it's, I, I think, you know, it's really fairly interesting to kind of see the passion that you have for, uh, you know, let's call it as a, as a blanket term anthropology. Um, you know, I think so many people overlook the value of language. I mean, value at the, at the pure essence is the glue that holds our world together. You know, without language and regardless of how rudimentary or, or um, you know, eloquent your communication may be, at the end of the day, without it, what do we really have? Um, you know, so it's it's fairly fascinating for me. And this kind of leads on to the fascinating fascination that I had with your book. So if I could tell a little story. So a, a friend of mine um, who is um, fascinated uh, with anthropology and is a very big fan of yours, in fact. Um, uh, so he's a doctor now, but um, uh, he... he 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 did a master's in Japan for 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 a year, and uh, he he learned uh, Japanese, and he's kind of wow. travelled around that kind of uh, world. And he he read your book, and he said, "Omar, listen, if you're looking for a book to read, you need to read this book. is called A Death in the Rainforest, and it's by this guy called Don Kulik. You need to you need to read it." And he gave me his copy. He said, "Here you go. Here's here's a copy. Read it." Um, I read it in about two days. Um, I could not put it down. It was, uh, first and foremost, I couldn't believe that someone actually did this. Uh, that that was the first thing I thought. How on earth can somebody do this? This is this is unbelievable, borderline maniacal. You know, this is un unreal. The kind of things that are going on here. And then I realised, hang on a second, I have a podcast. I could probably talk to this guy. This could be very interesting. Uh, so I, I spoke to my friend and I, I said, listen, um, I'm going to email Don and I'm going to ask him to come on the show because I am obsessed with this book. And I've read it twice now. Um, and I've actually passed over copies to many of my friends. Um, it's very, very, oh, my goodness, unbelievable. And I'd, I'd like you to take uh, some time, Don, and maybe for people who haven't read it, if you could just tell my audience a little bit about what the book is, uh, what it's about and why did you do it? My God, that's the that's the primary question that I wanna that I wanna ask. What was the motivating factor of doing what you did in this book? It is unbelievably extraordinary. Uh, but please take center stage. Oh, well, thank you for all of that. Um, I, I appreciate that very much. I, I mean, I can I can summarize the book by saying that it is it's it's partly a memoir. It's partly a discussion of how a language dies. And it's also partly kind of a mystery. Um, you know, how does a language die? What is, what is the death in the rainforest? Who is, who, who dies in the rainforest? What dies in the rainforest? So it's, 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 I started going to Papua New Guinea in 1985. And I have continued going back. The, my most recent trip was in 2019. And the book is about my experience as an anthropologist. It starts out with me being a complete idiot novice, ending up in the rainforest, and these people accepting me um, for reasons that you know are revealed in, in, the, in, the, 
in the fullness of the book, but we can talk about them. Um, and it charts the the my experience. What is it like? I, when I when I started to write the book, I wanted to write it for people who weren't academics. I mean, people who are students of anthropology. I would love them to read the book because what what does an anthropologist do is something that is kind of mysterious even to students of anthropology because one reads a lot of books by anthropologists, but they're very polished and they're very analytical. But the, the actual experiential dimension of getting material that one analyzes is often put either in footnotes or to the beginning chapter in a couple of paragraphs on the method. And then you move on to the analysis. But I, and I wrote, I've written those kinds of books myself, so I know, I know that. But I wanted to write about, I wanted to write for people who are actually seriously interested in, okay, what is an anthropologist? An anthropologist is somebody who goes to a place and spends a lot of time hanging out with people. What does it mean in practice to hang out with people? People who one doesn't know often, I didn't know these people before I started hanging out with them. One doesn't necessarily speak their language. One doesn't know a lot about them. One just kind of goes and plants oneself somewhere with questions that one has oneself, but that may or may not be of interest to the people who one suddenly appears among. And that's what I've done in several places, but I started doing it in Papua New Guinea. And as I said, I've been going back um, since I started in 1985, and I want to tell the story of how a language dies, because that is why I went to Papua New Guinea. I wanted to understand the process through which a language ceases to exist. And when I started doing this work in the 1980s, there were some studies of language death, but there were always either immigrant situations. So, you know, people like perhaps your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents who moved, you know, from the subcontinent to the UK. And what we know is that within three generations, often the, the maternal language and the paternal language don't get, they don't get transmitted because parents want their children to succeed in school. They don't want their children to be distracted by, you know, the, and so they basically encourage their children not to learn their own language. And what usually happens in the immigration situation, the migration situations, is that the, you know, your parents move, say, from India to the UK, you grow up speaking whatever language they spoke, but you don't want to speak because your friends who don't speak that language make fun of you. And you know, you want to be, you want to be a Brit. So you speak it and you understand it, but you don't want to speak it. Your children will probably speak a little bit of it to their grandparents, mm. who may or may not have learned English, but they will not really have get an active command of it. And that's okay with them. Their their children. So again, your parents great. Grandchildren yeah. will start to say to their parents, Why didn't you teach us Punjabi? Why didn't you teach us Urdu? I would have loved to have learned it. So there's a, you know, we know that. We know that. But when, 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 and we also know a bit about what happens when people don't migrate with, with language death. And that is that for various reasons, and they usually have to do with urbanization, with industrialization, with massive changes of, 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 of you know, move, mass movement. With massive changes like that, sort of macro changes, people stop transmitting their, their language to their children. Um, there's been studies, for example, in, in North America, 
and Native American languages, Aboriginal languages have not been transmitted. And that was because of the children were confiscated, people were put on mission stations and forbidden to speak their, 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 their maternal language. So there's really ugly stories throughout the world about this. But what really was not known when I started in the early 1980s is how that process really starts. Because when it began to be studied, people were looking at the last speakers. So, you know, people who were in their 60s and 70s who, who, who learned their native language but didn't speak it because of you know, kind of horrors. They were forbidden to speak it in school. Their community was either exterminated or died out. They were moved somewhere where they didn't have anyone to speak to. So people's linguists started working with them in order for them, because a lot of these languages were also not documented. So this was like a salvage. It's like, all right, well, we, we, know, we don't know about this language. And look, there's the last speaker. So let's try to get the speaker to remember as much as best we can. There were studies like that. But what I was interested in is how does it start? How does it start? Mm. And how does it especially start when people aren't going anywhere? Now, the reason I'm talking Papua New Guinea is because Papua New Guinea has the most number, it's the largest number of languages spoken anywhere in the world. Depending, again, the difference between the dialect and the language, you can discuss until the, the, the forever. But linguists are generally agreed that there's approximately 800 different languages in Papua New Guinea. And this really? is a population, it's a lot of languages. It's a lot of languages. We don't know how they're related. Most of them are undocumented. And most of them are spoken, well, not most of them, but a large number, about 30% of them, are spoken by less than 500 people. So they're tiny, they're minuscule, they're little, they're tiny languages. We don't know a lot about them. But what is clear is that because they're languages, they've been that way for a very long time. You know, they don't just, you know, a language takes a long time to develop. So we're talking hundreds of years, perhaps thousands of years, where this kind of amazing, remarkable linguistic diversity has, has continued and flourished. And, you know, Papua New Guinea is not the only place native North America, Australia, you know, the South has tons of languages. So there are places that have a lot of languages, but Papua New Guinea has the most. And it has, again, in the 1970s, when Papua New Guinea became a country from Australia, it had just over 3 million people. The population has exploded, so now there's about 8 million. Uh, people. And, but the, and the number of languages is actually declining now. And that's what I wanted to say. So when I went there in the 1980s, I knew that that most people, or many people in the country were speaking Tokisi, which is the language we've already mentioned. So it's mm. it's a pidgin language. It's a, it's a plantation language, just like Jamaican Creole. Uh, well, it's a language that was created by colonialists. So colonialists from the from Britain, from Germany, they basically moved men from the mainland and from the islands who didn't speak the common language. So they basically, they didn't enslave them there. I mean, this is, this is after, this is in the late 1800s. So they were no slaves, but they were, you know, how shall we say, um, encouraged, strongly encouraged sure. right, to, right. To, to, to go away for three years. Um, or more, to work on plantations as laborers. Now, these were men from groups of people who did not speak common languages. So they get there. What do they have to do? 
They have to obey the commands of their overseers, their, their white colonialist overseers. Those white colonialist overseers speak German and speak English. These guys who come there, they don't speak the common language. And in the fullness of time, they develop the language, which can, in this case turned out to be Tokise. Tokise means top pigeon. Um, oh. And it's got, isn't that great? It, 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 and much of the lexicon, so many of the words come from English. There's a few from German, because German was an original colonizer of New Guinea, but after World War I, they lost all their colonies. And they had the northern part of New Guinea, which was taken over by the Brits and eventually the Australians, who was sort of given to the Australians to administer. But so there are some words in our German, like Rausin, um, Rausin, get out of here, which, which is from the German, Rausin, Rausin, get away. And of course, these, these are great words because, you know, what would a German colonialist say to a native Papua New Guinean if not get out, get out of the way, Raus? So that's been incorporated into the language. And there's a lot of really, you know, I think they're very interesting words in Tokisin that are incorporated from English. They're totally colonialist. They're absolutely racist. But they, they were incorporated into the language to denote, for example, the word for white white man in, in, in Tokisi is, guess what? Masta. Masta. It means white oh, man. Oh, my God. Are you... So, re, is that right? And the word for... The, I mean, this is even better. The word for white woman is Mrs. 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 Holy shit. So, and then, you know, these words were... When I, moved, when I was in the 1980s, people called me a Masta. They've since moved on. They, since, they, don't, they realize that that word just really intense colonialist and indeed racist connotations. So it's not really used except, and this is very interesting, in the context of a conjugal union. So a woman will refer to her husband as her master, and her husband will refer to his wife as his nieces. Now this is again, this is the, this is the Christian influence, which we talk at great length about, um, which again is, is part of the whole colonial package. Um, it's colonialism, Christianity, and capitalism. The package, you tie with a bow, you give it to these people, and that's what they have to live with, you know, from then on. But, but so Tokisin was, just to get back to the, the genesis of the language, it was created through many words that come from English, but the, the grammar is not English. The grammar is, is, a, is kind of a mixture of the different languages that were spoken, or that are spoken. So I think it's a it's a one, it's my favorite language. It's a wonderful, wonderful language. Um, but that is the language that in by the 1980s, it was clear that that language was being spoken by many people in this country that used to just have all of these little languages. And so I thought, well, what's happening with these languages, these little languages? Now that people are learning this common language, what's happening to the little ones? So I went there to try to find that out. And I went to a village where it turns out that the, the, when I arrived in the 1980s, I realized that no child under 10 was speaking the local language. And this was a historic shift because obviously this was a language that had been developing over hundreds, perhaps even thousands of years. Wow. Suddenly, suddenly, no child under 10 was speaking. They were all speaking Pokisi instead. At the same time, nobody was going. So all of the, all of the sociological that, that, that you know, had always been 
seen as the, as the causes of language shift and indeed language shift weren't present. So there was no mass migration. There was no industrialization. There's no urbanization. There was really nothing going on that would motivate these people to stop teaching their language to their children. But that's in fact what was happening. So when I arrived, I realized this is really interesting. It's a mystery. How did this happen? And so that's why I, that's why I stayed um, in, in, in this village. It's a village where it was a language that was completely undocumented. At the time I arrived in 1985, it was spoken by about 89 people. And I say about because it was villagers who were living in other villages who I suspect spoke with them who I never met. But in the village, there were 89 speakers of the language. And it was a population of just over 100 at that time. And what was very clear to me is kids were no longer learning it. And so I thought, well, why? 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 So I spent 15 months in the village. Um, and again, it's not an easy village to get to. It's, um, it's, what was the journey it's, like? Well, at the time, it took it took two 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 to three days um, um, from the nearest provincial capital, and we're talking cities. We're not talking cities. We're talking you know, very tiny little settlements, really. But to, you know, one would go there. One would get a, a car to the Sepik River, which took a day. And then, on the, and then one would spend the night usually there, and then take, take a, a canoe with a, an outboard motor on it um, down the secret river. And depending on whether or not one got into a creek when the tide was in or out, it could, that, you could do it in one full day. But if the tide was out, you had to wait. So you waited for you know eight hours, and then continue. And then you had to, you, you, you know, it's like it's say. A 10 hour journey on the water, Seafood River, then you go into the creek, then you go into the mangrove lagoon, then you go up another little creek, and then you walk through the rainforest for an hour. So it was quite arduous. Um, and it's, it, there's no roads, there's no roads, mm. there's no, you know, the, the, the poor villagers, they, they, you know, they've been totally exhorted to grow cash crops since the late 1950s. Nobody comes and buys their crops because nobody can get there. No one um, can get there, yeah. No one can get there. So their coffee, you know, they, 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 you know, they've gone through a whole range of crops. They started with rice, nobody bought the rice. They started, they, you know, they, they did coffee, nobody bought the coffee. They did, um, you know, cocoa, vanilla at one point, nobody bought the vanilla. Um, oh, my God. Know, so they, it's, it's, it's a very sad rubber, they did rubber, nobody bought the rubber. Um, you know, so they, 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 you know, they want, you know, they, they, they want money. They don't have money. They want money because they buy things like they buy clothes, they buy steel pots, um, they buy steel tools, they buy machetes, they buy things like that, um, saws, hammers. So they want money, but it's difficult. To, so this this little village is not on the beaten path. I get there, they don't know who I am. You know, I don't know anything about property. I can barely speak property. I you know, and so I learned it in situ. And you know, to, to get back to your question about you know learning language, I mean, you know, learn, loving languages, I've learned them all in place. So I get there, I speak very little in. I spend the first couple of weeks just being a stupid idiot, not understanding anything. They didn't speak English, I didn't speak Tokisin, I certainly didn't speak their little local language that I was there to, to, to study. And we just kind of got by, and as, as time went on, I, I increasingly learned Tokisi, because as I say, it's not, a, it's not a massive different language. 
just you know, some of the, a lot of the vocabulary is, 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 is you know, talk, talk means talk. Sit down, sit down means sit down. Stand up, mm. stand, stand up. Oh stand up, it's shut up. Um, so it's, it's, you know, they're, they're, one can grasp, grasp. So you're, you're you're totally right. There there is a lot of similarities between that and like Creole, for example. It, it it's, sounds fairly similar. Yeah. But when you hear it spoken, it's very difficult. So is that right? Just, okay. Is that is that well, a dialect like, I mean, problem? It's not a dialect problem. It's a language. I mean, so if I say to you, for you know oh my goodness! Right? You're totally right. But, yeah. But but there are words that you would use. I mean, maybe sit down. I sat down. We talk talk like you. I, I'm I, I'm speaking to you. Um, yes. We walk walk I did my I did my I did my work. Um, so again, there's. But again, the, the, the way it's spoken, and you, you, again, when one hears a language, you don't hear words, you hear, you hear a flow. And it's difficult when you, you know, you'll, you'll hear a word and say, oh, I get that. But then by that yeah. time, but what, what, the conversation what, what, has moved on. I wonder, Don, why is it that you feel as though that I'm finding it, you know, fairly easy to understand individual words when you say them individually, but the moment it forms into a sentence, you know, it's you may as well be speaking gibberish to me. Why do you well, think that might be? Well, because the words do come from English. I mean, the word, the mm. word sit down comes from sit down. Stand up comes from stand up. Talk talk comes from talk. So again, they're, they're words that are derived from English. And that's why you, if I say them, as words, you can understand yes. that. But again, you know, it's like that's a different story because you're hearing it. Yeah. Okay. It in, in, Amazing. And that's, wow. But that's what made it possible for me to start to learn it because I could grasp, grasp on the words that I, I, I could get. Um, you know, name you, name you, what What's your name? Name. It's like, okay, name. Blue you, belong you. What is your name? Belong you. Name blue you? What is it? What is it? So again, you can, you can, you, you can, you, after a while, again, you can't, you have to talk to people. So I was there in the jungle. <laughs> I, I, I had to talk. I had to understand. Um, you know, I mean, you know, one of the first things I did learn to understand is that they would, um, you know, this is a this is a very tiny village. Everybody knows everything about sure. each other. And one of the things that, that distressed me most is that I never had any privacy at all, ever. Oh. And every time, every time I went to you know into the jungle to, to go to the toilet, mm. people would always ask me, you know, you go to the toilet, uh, are you going to the toilet? And I was like.
those were one of my first. Those were some of my first phrases. Was 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 this was is this a typical practice within this uh, community, or was this because yes, they yes, were yes. just enamoured by you? No, it's. I mean, everybody always wants to know where everybody is. Because, you said, wow, you know, that's fascinating. Because you know, I mean, first of all, if you have kids, you want to know where the kids are. Because kids get lost if they go into the rainforest. Yes. If you want to know where your husband or your wife is, it's because they could be having an affair with somebody. So mm-hmm. you want to know where they are. Um, you want to know where your neighbors are. Neighbors can steal stuff from you. They can go into your garden and steal a papaya. They can steal some, you know, some of your crops. So you're always, everyone is always asking each other where they have been, where they're sure. going. Um, and of course, people lie. Everyone lies. Yes. But you can, if they later turn out to have been lying, you can say that you said you were in, you know, the garden. You said. You were going to the toilet when, in fact, you were going into the jungle to have an affair with my husband. Um, you know, that's... <laughs> so it's kind so, of like so a, a word-of-mouth surveillance, almost. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, in a place like this, there's no other, there's no other way of knowing about it. You have to... It's all rumour. It's rumour, it's hearsay, and it's direct observation. So it's a very surveilled society. But again, since, since, you know, since people lie to each other, I mean, there's no, there's no, this is one of the things that I, you know, I read about in the book. One of the first things that children learn is that everybody lies to them. Um, and that to me was a really interesting observation. I'd see, you know, one of the first interactions that a mother has with her baby, as soon as the, they don't talk to kids, I mean, they don't talk to babies, especially if babies don't talk back, they're, they're boring. So, you know, when a baby starts to cry, a mother will stick her breast in its mouth. When babies after a few months don't satisfy themselves with that, when they start to fuss, a mother will turn the baby around so the face is outside. So it's looking at it's looking at the same thing that the mother is looking at. The mother will point into the distance. And more often than not, she'll say, you know, she'll say in Pokemon, you look at peak too. you look at peak. Which means there's a pig, look at the pig. Look at that pig. There's a pig. See the pig. There's no pig. There's no pig. So the mother is pointing to something that doesn't actually exist. And it took me a long time to understand what was going on. Because I thought, why is this mother, how is this kid, how does this child ever learn anything? <laughs> because I mean, talk about growing up with trust issues, right? Well, again, but what they learn, what they learn through that, I've proved it is that you can't trust, exactly, you can't trust anyone. You cannot trust, because very quickly, children learn when the mother points to something, she's not telling you what it is, she's telling you. So that means that the kids have to trust their own, their own eyes, their own ears. They have to draw their own conclusions. So it is, it's about, it's about learning how to trust their own conclusions, their own readings of the world, because no one's going to tell them how it works. They have to figure it out for themselves, which makes children incredibly valuable to people who want to gossip about other people. Because uh-huh. kids can go anywhere. Kids, you know, little kids go everywhere. They go into people's houses, they follow people into the rainforest, they're everywhere. What happens is, is that when they go back to their houses, the parents said, so what was so-and-so doing? Where did so-and-so go? And the kids have been taught to observe, to listen, 
and to watch. So it's great, and it's it's you know, and this is this is this is a socialization. But it really means that language in this in this society isn't. I mean, you know, we when I say we said Western people in Europe, Europe, North America, Australia, we have this idea that people, that lying is somehow aberrant. I mean, of course, all people don't have that. Somebody like Boris Johnson or Donald Trump lie every time they open their mouths. But, yep. but most people, most, most, most reasonable people think that you, know, you shouldn't lie. Kids are taught not to lie. You don't lie, they, they get punished for lying. Lying is bad. And we have this very, very, really colonialist idea that everybody is that way. Mm. In fact, that's a very culturally specific understanding of what language is and what language can be used for. In, in Papua New Guinea, certainly the people that I work with, the village, the village is called Gakwin, people have the opposite view of language. So that lying is the default, that everybody lies. So what you have to do when you're talking to people is just really interpret what you're hearing. You have to do a lot of interpretive work to understand what they're really saying. You know, people don't always lie, but you know, it's not like they go around lying on everything. But the, the default assumption is that when you ask somebody a question, they're not going to tell you the truth. So you have to pay attention. You have to remember where did you last see that person? What did that person say when you said to them when they were leaving the village? Oh, you're going to your garden, are you? Did they say yes? Did they say no? I'm going to go fishing, and you you piece it together, which is a it's a it's a it's a fabulous, it's a wonderful way of using language. But it took me, you know, being trained as it were in another system, a long time to understand what was going on. Uh, mm. I wonder, Don, did so, you, did you ever kind of you know think for a second that hang on a second, I'm I'm kind of in this environment with essentially these strangers, you know, I can kind of, I can speak the overarching language, but, uh, and I, I, I do know that there's an interesting story that you told, which maybe you could tell um, uh, later about who they thought you were, because uh, I don't think yeah. they've ever seen a white man before. Well, they, um, had, they had seen white men, they had seen white people, but they had never seen a white, they had never experienced a white person coming and saying, I want to stay with you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to hang out with you. Never, hey, let's 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 go seen, for a coffee. <laughs> exactly. They have, well, let's go for a cigar, bro. But I mean, they had never, you know, they had never, they had never. I mean, they had seen colonial officials, so they'd seen white missionaries, they'd seen white colonial officials, from white, but they came in, they lined everybody up, they took, you know, a, a census, they converted people to Christianity, and they were there for an afternoon, and they left, and were for the most part never seen again. So when I arrived and said, can I be here? Can you, you know, can I? <laughs> Which is stupid. I mean, I think of myself now, I think, what was I doing? But I did it. And they were like, okay, okay, okay. Um, but sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. Um, yeah, so... You know, I, I wonder, like, you know, as you started realizing that kind of lying is the default and and it's about kind of, you know, uh, decorating around that or trying to separate the wheat from the chaff, i.e. The, the truth and the lie. I wonder, were you ever f frightened for a moment and thought, I've just asked this guy, is everything cool? Am I safe? And he said, yeah, you're safe. Everything's cool. And he kind of had a bit of a cheeky look on his face, potentially. You know, did you ever, were you ever scared at that moment? Because I, I know much later on uh, uh, that there was an incident uh, that happened. Yes. Uh, which encouraged you not to return for a while. Um, 
Well, you know, okay, frozen. No, no, we're, we're, we're back. Yeah, yeah. No, you, you froze for a second. You froze for a second. Yes, and I, I, I mean, this is one of the things that I, I, I think I opened the book with this experience. It was a very disconcerting experience. Yeah. I've been in the village for three weeks, and um, you know, I, I was, I did what the anthropologists call a reconnaissance trip. That is to say, I went there for a very short. I went there for a month to see mm-hmm. if I could. First of all, I could stand to be be there. Also, whether they would accept me. You know, being there for a longer time. I mean, they might have just said, "Fuck off." I mean, you know, we don't want you, but they did. And I, you know, I was like, "All right, well, would I?" And also, is is there an interesting thing to study? Is there an interesting research question? What would I be here for a year to look at? So that's that's. So I was there for honestly. So I, you know, I go there, and I'm, you know, I was I'm about to leave. So I was I've been there for three weeks. It is very you know, again, it's, it's not easy to get to. There are, there are just over 100 people. It's in the middle of the rainforest. It's in a swamp, actually. So it's surrounded by oh, experience. Okay. It's not a very, it's, it's, I mean, rainforests sound really nice. They're not, they're not nice. Mm. Um, and, you know, in a swamp, swamps are not nice. They're full of mosquitoes, they're full of mud, they're full of death. They're, they're not nice. But, you know, I mean, the people, the people I thought were, were yes. incredible. So I'm there. Three weeks into the stay. It's pouring rain. It's thundering. It's lightning. So, and it's night. And, you know, there's no electricity here. So we're sitting around a little, um, a little wake stuck into a tin can with a light on it. A little, mm. you know, not, not a lot of light. So I'm sitting in a house with, I don't know how many, and they're all, they're all, they're all smoke. So they're all smoking hand-rolled cigarettes. They, 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 they roll cigarettes out of tobacco. So I'm sitting there seeing a lot of sort of orange, they look like disembodied eyes. It's kind of floating wow. around in the, in, the, in the darkness. And at that point, somebody says to me, we know who you are. <laughs> and, and I thought, what? Uh, and they, they proceeded to tell me that I was dead, that I was a, I was a villager who had died many years, several years ago, and that I had come back to them. Um, and they knew my name. And they knew exactly who my mother, who also was deceased, was. Um, and they were telling me. They basically wanted me to confirm that this is who I was. I quietly freaked out um, because I, you know, I, you know, this was serious. This was. I thought to myself, this is something. I, I you know, I thought, what the, what, what, what do I say? Um, and they were, you know, they were very serious. And as I say, it was very weird to see because the, you know, yeah. every now and then the, the lightning flashed. I saw these these kind of you know these, this unknown number of people in the house, you know, these cigarettes floating around like eyes, and they were saying, you know, we know who you are. And I was completely nonplussed. And that it freaked me out. Um, mm. I, I don't know, I don't know how I responded correctly. Um, because also. I thought to myself, you know, in a moment of madness, I thought, well, you know, who knows? Maybe I am this person. I don't know. Who can say? So I, I, I was just, I, I, and that that scared me because I didn't know what they wanted because I thought, well, okay, so say I'm dead, say mm-hmm. I'm reincarnated. What do they expect me to do? Yes, and. And you know the worst part of it 
was that like a few days after that, I was so distraught and I was so in need of any kind of privacy, solitude, because I was with people continually. They wouldn't let me out of their sight because I was exotic. Mm. That was weird because they uh, was entertaining to them because you know they just because they also don't let each other out. They don't want you to be alone. If you're alone, you're dying usually. Um, so I just I fled into the rainforest, and it turns out that I fled right into this is just couldn't make this up. I fled into the the area of the rainforest, which is their cemetery. So I fled into the place where they bury dead bodies. I didn't do that, they're not marked. I mean, they basically bury a body and then let the junk go over. So there's no gravestones or anything like that. And I just kind of walked around there for like, you know, 20 minutes, just to just be by myself. I come out, the whole village is waiting for me. Holy shit. <laughs> and, I thought, and I thought, what is going on? What's gonna happen? And I, you know, I later, they were expecting me to bring money because, they thought that I was going into the graveyard to bring bring sacks of money with me from from you know beyond, and you know I disappointed them once again by not doing that. But I was you know, and then as 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 the years went on and I kept coming back, I realized I you know they still they still um, they still think that, and there's a lot of reasons why they. And I think that one of the things that I hope I do successfully in the book is explain why they do that. Because it's not just something that they're deluded crazy. There's a history to why they think that. And it's, you know, it's, it's a long history. It's completely it, it, compelled by colonialism, Christianity, and capitalism, why they think mm. that I'm a, a returned villager. They have a theory of it. They have a, you know, have a very elaborated cosmology where that makes perfect sense to them. But I've concluded that they still believe that. Um, and I have a chapter in the book about a young man coming to my house in, in 2009. Um, his father had recently passed away. And, and you know, he comes to my house late one night and gives me a letter. Mm. Or, or he, you know, he says to me, he says, you know, when are you going back to your country? When are you going back to Sweden? And I say, I'm going back in about five months. Mm. And he sort of says, well, um, you know, can you take a letter for me? And I, you know, I talked about it in the book. You know, I thought that he, they just recently in the, in, the, in, the, in the area discovered pen pals, what they call pen friends. And so I thought mm. he wanted me to take a, a letter to somebody, you know, I don't know who he wanted me to take it to, but I thought he, he was trying to establish a pen pal relationship with somebody. And I said, so who do you want me to take the letter to? And he said, my father, oh. who had died a couple of oh my months goodness. earlier. And that's, you know, that was like, and this was, again, this is not, this is not play. This is serious. And this again, confronted me with a really intense ethical dilemma, because by that point, and this is a kid I knew since he was I, well, I, I knew him since before he was playing. His mother since before he was four. I've known these people for a long time now. Yeah. And, you know, so I know what they think of me. And I know that at that stage, if I said to him, I can't take this letter to your father because I'm not going to see your father because your father's dead. He would have heard it as a refusal. He would have heard it as me saying, I'm not going to do it. Okay, so he didn't hear the fact that you're not dead and that I'm not going to see him because I'm not dead and he's dead. He's heard it as, I'm not taking it, I'm not doing it for you. He, I didn't say it because if I had said that, 
he would have heard it as, oh, I see. I'm I see. refusing. I am refusing to take this letter to your father. Sure. Because they assume, you know, they assume that I am dead. Um, yes. And, and there's nothing I can do. To, I've concluded that there's really nothing I can do to change that. Which, again, brings me back to your question of whether I was afraid. Yes, I am afraid. Uh, I think to myself, think if there's somebody who wants, wants to, you know, do an experiment. Something that there's, a, you know, a Popperian among them. And they're going to test a hypothesis. This guy is dead. Can we kill him again? Can we kill um, him again? This is exactly what I'm I was thinking terrified. in my head when I'm, I'm reading this thing. Yeah. I'm terrified. I'm actually, frankly, always a bit, well, not terrified, but I'm, I'm a bit um, on edge. Concerned. Constantly yeah. in the village that somebody might get it into their heads to just put that to a test. So, I, yes, it makes me very anxious. But in this case, with this letter, I, I couldn't say, no, I, you know, I, I, you know what, I'm not, not going to go to heaven. I'm not going to. I'm not going to, to, to heaven. I'm not going to see your father. If I had said that, he would have heard me saying, "I'm. I'm not going to. I'm refusing to deliver your letter." To mm. So I couldn't say no, but I also couldn't, of course, say yes because that would mean that I'm saying yes, I am dead, and I'm going to meet your father for cocktails next. You know, when I go back, I couldn't say that because that's not true. No. So I ended up, you know, I, I, I document this in the, I, I talk about this in the chapter. I said, you know, well, I'm, I'll do my best, which was all I could manage to squeeze out. Because again, you know, I did not go there as a missionary. I did not go there to change people's views of the world, which is a different, a, a vast distinction between an anthropologist who goes to learn from people and a, a Christian missionary who goes to change. I didn't change. I didn't want to change them. So when they were telling me that, that I was dead, I said to them, "You know, why do you think that? Mm. What you know?" And, and I'd say, "Well, tell me about tell me about Jesus. Where does Jesus live?" Because I wanted to learn what they think about the world. That was what I was there for. That was my job. I did not go there to educate them. I did not go there to, to tell them what I think. About the world. I was. I wanted to learn what they think about the world. And that, to me, is is what. Good anthropology does. Good anthropology conveys a worldview that is not yours. It tells you what people think, and it makes it makes it make sense. And sometimes it doesn't make sense even to them. But but one one says that. But in this case, they have a very elaborate cosmology of how the world works, how Papua New Guinea is linked to European countries, where the Pope lives, where mm -hmm. Jesus lives, and how all of that ties together. They, they, they piece this together from the, from the fragments of information that they've managed to get over the decades from colonial administrators, from Christian missionaries, from people like me who inadvertently give things away. So when they said to me at one point, you know, have you ever been to Rome? I said, yeah, I've been there. That, for them, was like, well, then he goes to heaven because they think that, that Rome is the capital of heaven. So, For real. again, I, absolutely, absolutely. Wow. And again, wow. My, my challenge, my challenge as an anthropologist is to convey this without making fun of it because it's easy to make jokes about this. It's easy to see these people as kind of deluded, yes. you know, naive, you know, silly people. They're not silly. They're no. really intensely interested in understanding the way the world is put together and their place in the world. 
And as I say, because they're presented only with fragments, and because they're really interest, interested in putting these fragments together to pose a whole, they do. And you know, for us, their worldview is completely bizarre. But again, you know, for, for, for them, I'm sure all our worldview is just as bizarre. They said to me, it's like, wait, people have to, and I'd say, well, actually, people don't just get money in mm. the countries. You know, they don't just get money, they have to work. And they're completely perplexed by that. It's like, wait, white people work? But you have so much money. I mean, why do you work? Um, and I said, because we have to get money. Well, doesn't, don't you just get money? You know, yeah. and the fact that we walk anywhere is the flexing steps. Like, but wait, you guys have cars, so why do you walk? Interesting. <laughs> and you know, again, this is this is their they're not stupid, they're not they're yeah. not deluded. They're they're incredibly intelligent, but they're working with what they have. And what yeah. they have are fragments. Of, of, of things that they really, really, really intently put together. They think about this a lot. And this is one of the reasons I wrote the book, because they think about white people a lot. White people don't think about them generally at all. And one of my messages in the book is that we owe it to people who live in our world, whose lives we have influenced and impacted on enormously, irrevocably. We owe it to them to learn something about them and not proceed and pretend as though we're we're the only ones in the world. You know, and it's, again, I'm I'm always amazed at how much time and energy and effort they put into trying to figure out, you know, what where, where do white people come from? Why do they just appear in our country? Why do they have money? Why don't we have money? Why do they have airplanes? Why don't we have airplanes? It's been an enormous amount of time. We don't, you know, most white people don't even know where Papua New Guinea is. Yes, so again, yes. part of my contribution to, to, to this conversation is to actually, you know, say, actually, these people exist. Actually, these people are important. They're living, vibrant, loving, wonderful, smart, funny people. And know something about them. Just, if for no other reason, just know about them. Just for your own edification. Know tell their story. Know that they think. Tell the story. Know that they have stories. Know that they have stories. Know that they're there. So that's what I see the contribution of this book doing, um, you know, partly to just sort of let people know that people think about them. People, mm. you know, people think people have a lot of theories about white people in Rome. A lot of theories, and you know, you can laugh at them and say, "Oh, you know, Jesus doesn't live in Rome with the Pope and 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 Maria." But then you think to yourself, well, "Wait a minute, why is it they think that in the first place?" Yeah. And then you think, "Well, wait a minute." They think that because they've been colonized by Europeans. They think that because they've been missionized by Christian missionaries who've told them things that they have no way of understanding, but they want to understand. They want to understand. And that's what they're, that's what they, that's their understanding. And I think that it is, you know, I think that one could say, oh, but you know, to say this, to, to present these stories to Westerners is demeaning to them. It's not demeaning to them. How is it demeaning to them? It's their stories. It's what they it's what they think. And what I'm doing is I'm saying their stories. I think it's you know again it's demeaning to anyone, it's demeaning to us who have colonized. Yes. I colonized people, missionized people, and then left them. We've left. We're gone. We're gone. Yes. We're yes. gone. We gave them, we, we took, we took away from them 
you know, their culture. We ultimately, and this is, you know, this is a very complicated argument, but my, but my nutshell um, view of this is that colonization basically took away from these people their culture, colonization, missionization, capitalism, took away from them everything. It took away from them everything they've always dreamed of, everything they've always believed in, it took it away. And it gave them nothing in return, yes. nothing. Yes. Um, and that to me is 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 uh, it, it, it makes me want to cry. And I, you know, I hope that reading the book, one a reader will will, will partly get my sense of joy living with these really <laughs> they're I love these people. They're great, they're funny, they're vibrant, they're they're bitchy, they're they're they they're they're they're, they're, they're great people. But also my my great sense of remorse and 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 tragedy that you know the, the, we've really fucked them over. We've really yes. fucked them over, and yes. we've given them really nothing in return. And they're still trying to figure it out. So they're sort of they're 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 walking through the wreckage of what used to be their their culture and their language and their own history, which they've been you know made to forget because missionaries in the 1950s, when there were still old people who knew what it was like before contact with white people, they told, they told villagers that their history is satanic and to forget it. And the old men, you know, they, they were afraid. So they didn't pass it on to anyone. Um, and this is what we brought. This is what we brought. So, so the book, I hope, is not, it's not a tragedy. It's not, it's, I, you know, I hope it's, one of the things that I, I've worked a lot on is the humor. I hope it's funny because these people have a really intense sense of humor and I want to say that. But I think the story as a whole is, is, is one of colonialism and you know racism and and and, and it's a, it's a tragedy. For these people it's a tragedy. And I, yes. I'm not sure how I'm not sure how we can correct that, but that's the story as it stands. You know, I think I, th I think for me, Don, first and foremost, you know, you you really, you know, eloquently and articulately uh, kind of, you know, put, put that out there because it really connected with me and the message that I got from your book is I wouldn't regard it as a tragedy. I would regard it as tragic, I guess, so that, you know, <sighs> the death of a language is. Thank you. Is, yes, is, I think that's better. Yeah, yeah um, is. Um, is is a very very kind of sad thing to see these hundreds of potentially as you said thousands of years worth of culture education understanding development kind of fizzle away into nothing is is extraordinarily tragic but with, through your magic of storytelling and I would say magic I I have such a you know as someone uh, so I I did I did law at university and I I always loved writing and expressing myself through words and 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 the written medium. Um, you know, I have such great admiration for the way that you were able to tell these uh, the, the, the untold stories of these of, of this community. I grew to found myself, you know, with this uh, weird admiration and affection for these people, you know, almost living vicariously through you. Um, and what I find is you, you have this unusual skill of allowing the reader to put themselves in your shoes and feel as though that they are the ones that are forming a relationship with these people. They're the ones that are living through these stories, um, seeing what you see, uh, communicating the way that you communicate. And that was always very interesting to me. But if I could sidebar for a moment, uh, you mentioned this thing about Christian missionaries. And there was a story recently that came out in the news, I think it was fairly recently, of a Christian missionary that went to a... Uh, kind of a forgotten tribe, I think. Uh, oh, yeah, the Islands. 
Yeah, yes. yes, 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 yes. Submission um, lesson, yes. Yeah. He was shot. He was shot by arrows and I think he was killed. Um, he was, yeah. Now, I've heard kind of many different opinions around this, and I have an opinion about this personally, but as an, anthropolo- uh, as a, as an anthropologist, I, w- I would love to understand your opinion on this and, 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 and what you think about that. Well, I think, I mean, missionization is a very complicated question. I mean, it's very easy to say that they're all, you know, all missionaries are evil and they, you know, they should, they, but it's not true. I mean, there are, and again, if one looks at the, the missionization history in a lot of countries, missions brought schools, missions brought education, missions brought medicine. Missions did bring, you know, they did, missions want to change people's views. They want them to become Christian. They want them to give up on their traditional beliefs. It doesn't always work. In fact, many places, in most places, it probably doesn't work. But so there's, 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 there's much good, I think, that can come with missionization, but there's also much not good. Mm-hmm. And I think that the trajectory in a place like Papua New Guinea, I mean, look at the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church in the 1930s was going around burning, um, or not the church, but individual priests would go to villages. I mean, the, the village I worked in, Gatwin, in the 1930s, they were visited by one afternoon by a renegade priest who made the men reveal their sacred flutes to women. Now, this is the equivalent of asking a devout Christian to urinate on crucifix. This is really? such an abhorrent, it's such an abhorrent thing to do, to reveal these sacred flutes to women. And men did it because, and I spoke to, to some old men in the 1980s who were present when it happened. I said, why didn't mm. you, why didn't you protest? They said, what? He was a priest. What were we supposed to do? He was a white wow. priest. What were we supposed to do? So they did, and so, you know, the Catholic Church, or not, individual priests in the Catholic Church did some really nasty things. They encouraged people to burn their traditional um, religious relics, all of that. They did that. But now, today, now today, the Catholic Church and many individual priests are at the forefront of protecting women who, in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, are being burned as witches. So they're, they're the ones that are working with communities to get these women out, to get, get them to save houses. The government does very little, but the Christian churches, especially, to my knowledge, the Catholic Church, is doing an enormous amount to protect these women. Now, again, one can go around and around this. Why are they being burdened witches in the first place? Because Christian beliefs introduce the notion that witches can and should be burned. So, again, but, and again, one of the problems is there's a lot of different Christianity. Some of them are quite frankly crazy. Um, others are much more staid and you know much more devoted to providing education, medicine, and all of that. So I think the mission, I think that the missionization question is a, is a very difficult one. It's, there's no real easy answer. But in relation to somebody like this, 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 you know, I think quite quite frankly think crazy man who went and wanted to save these people who did not ask for. Um, he went, you know, against all. He, he broke the law. By, by yes, yes, um, yes. And you know, he got killed with both arrows. I mean, yeah, it's like I, I mean, suppose he's a martyr. Yeah, I mean, from what from what I read, actually, is that he kind of came to these people, and and they actually gave him warning shots. Um, they they fired at the ground in front of him. They fired at his uh, luggage, from what I understand. Um, and he he left, and he kind of he came back with bloody backup, 
And uh, I thought, wow, that's extraordinary. You know, my goodness, uh, this is not this is not a, a great situation. Just leave the people alone. No, it happens all the time. I mean, some of the countless times the Amazon based on where we kill missionaries, um, first contact situations. This happened several times in Papua New Guinea where people just, you know, kill them. And, you know, again, I mean, they're, they're trespassing. They're trespassing. <laughs> they're trespassing. They want, you know, people don't, if they don't want them, then it's, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not. I'm certainly not going to shed any tears over these mm. people. But I think that mission, I, I, I've gone full circle with this. When I first, when I wrote my first book about um, about the village, which appeared in 1990 or 1992, which is my PhD thesis, which documents this process through which parents don't teach their children the, the vernacular language, the local language. Mm. I was, I didn't write very much about missionaries, but I was very anti-mission. Um, but since then, I think I've mellowed because I've met, you know, one week, I mean, missionaries are not bad people, generally speaking. They're, mm. they're very, they're very caring, they're very loving people. Um, so I've mellowed, and also as I see, I see the, the, the quite important work that the Christian churches do in a place like Papua New Guinea, where the government does very little. And so any kind of social welfare, any sort of medical care, for decades was provided by the Catholic Church in the, in the village I was working in. The, the, the state did nothing. The state does nothing now. But the Catholic missionaries were actually providing medical care for people. So you can't you can't subtract that. You, you, know, you can't you, you can't say that that's bad. I you know I, I don't think that education is a bad thing. I don't think that medical care is a bad thing. I you know I I, I don't I don't want people you know people in the place like Trump in the beginning they want these things and I think that to 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 not to, to say, oh, but they they should remain primitive, um, is a deeply condescending uh, thing to do, and I think it's I think it's wrong. So people should get access to things. They should certainly get access to medical care. They should certainly get access to education. And again, in any case, that's that's provided by missions, not provided by the state. So I think that you know I'm not going to defend Christian missionization, but I'm also not going to. I'm not going to tear it down and say that it's worthless that it should be banned because I see that it's a very, it's a deeply, deeply complicated issue. And I think that in various places it's going to play out in different ways and also in various times because, as I said, the, the missionaries working in, in Papua New in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they would burn down villages if people didn't work. They were, you know, they were, they were, they were, they were nasty. They were not nice. But since then, of course, things have gotten. Got much much better. So um, I think I would. I, I, I would. Yeah, Sorry, I would. Please. I would totally. No, no, I would totally agree with you. Um, I, I think painting anything with a broad brush is is a is a dicey uh, way of going about things. It's, it doesn't um, help anyone, and also it's a very it's a very condescending way because you know people in the place like Papua New Guinea want at this stage they want many not not all but you know a lot of them want exchange. I mean, evangelical churches are surging with, um, you know, new, new, new congregants. And again, you know, you and I can have opinions about it, and you know, I'm sure we do. But if the people want these things, who are we to say, oh, they can't have it? They shouldn't have it. I couldn't them. agree. And that, I couldn't agree. And that is that's my that's a point that I also make in the book about language death because you know currently there's a lot of 
there's a lot of discourse in, in, in Western societies about language, about how tragic it is, as we said, and it is a deep tragic. I mean, there's no other word for it. It's, you know, a language which is developed, it's a full, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's magical. A language is magic. And when that magic chest sort of shuts down forever, something is irrevocable. That is, 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 that just is, that is so. But there's a discourse currently percolating in, in the West that, oh, it's so sad, it's so tragic. Oh, it's such a loss for humanity. We should do something. And, you know, having worked with people who I think have very good reasons for not, um, you know, they don't care about their language. Their language is not that important to them, frankly. Mm. Um, they have other things that are more important to them than their language. Again, because of Christianity, colonialism, and, and, and capitalism. It's not like they just made this up. I mean, they're, they're, they're being influenced by all these things. But at the end of the day, they don't really care. And for somebody like me to sort of start wagging my finger at this and saying, you know what? Your language is really a gem and a treasure chest. And I really think you should not stop speaking it. You really should teach it to your children. I think that's the epitome of condescension. And I'm not going to do it. And you know, and, and you know, I think that people who get their makers in a twist about the language loss that, that the world is currently experiencing, because it is, I think that the ones who want to put their money where their mouth is and give you know, people education, make primers, devote themselves to, to do great, do it. Support these people, support these communities with everything we have. Mm. But, you know, a language like Tayyap, which is the language we're talking about, it's now spoken by about 40 people. Wow. They're, they're not, you know, no one is particularly, no one's weeping no. about the language loss. They're not, they, they're, they're worried about other things. They're concerned about other things. For mm. me to insert myself as a concerned, busybody, linguists and tell them that they really should preserve this wonderful tongue that they developed. Mm. I I can't do it because to me that's another you have no position to do so. Yeah. I don't think I do. I mean it's colonial it's it's a, it's, a, it's it's the definition of colonialism. A white do-gooder or no do-gooder inserting myself and sort of telling them what to do. I'm not gonna do it. What I have done is I've documented so my I've written a grammar Yes. Together with a, 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 a linguist named Agile Otero, we wrote a 500-page grammar of this language, which is now on a few select bookshelves. <laughs> it's not a bestseller. Um, but that is the documentation. That's the language. That's the only documentation of language that probably ever exists. When the language is dead, within 50 years, that was And my fantasy is that at some point in the future, maybe in 50 years, maybe 100, maybe 100 years, if people are still around, someone will think, wait a minute, my great-great-grandparents spoke this language. Yes. What was it? And they're going to find this bookshelf, you know, probably you know, moldy and, and, and you know, eaten by ants, and, but they may find it, and they may just get something out of it. And that, to mm. me, is... That is my contribution to this, this, this particular death of this particular language. Um, and I think that that's really the most respectful thing that I can do. I'm not going to start telling them they have to speak it. And in fact, I never actually learned to speak the language. 
And what I, that was a very conscious choice on my, my, my part because I could have learned to speak it. But if I had learned to speak it, they would have defined, I mean, the young people in the village, none of them speak it, would have defined me as an old git, mm. you know, an old git who says, oh, you know, you have to speak. And it's like, I, didn't want to, I did not want to be defined as an old, stodgy old git. I wanted to yep. be able to talk to everybody. So I made a conscious decision not to, and I understand it. Understand. I mean, as do they. They all understand it, but they don't speak it. And so I, I align myself more with them than I wanted to align myself with something gets. Um, um, you know, for, for that reason. I mean, different linguists take different decisions about those sorts of things. But my decision was based on what I wanted to see my position in relation to the village as a whole. And I did not want to be the Sajio Git, who was continually upgrading the youngins for not yes. speaking their language. Um, so, so I, I don't speak it, but I, I understand it and I describe it in grammar. But and as I say, that to me is, I think that's a, it's a modest contribution, but it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a, in my view, a respectful contribution to, 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 to their language and to them as a community. Yeah, the, the, the way that I kind of uh, view it is, and I, I really actually appreciate this uh, because I, I, I'm, I've never really been a fan of, I think, you know what, I've been a very, the only thing I'm very vocal about, I'm not vocal about religion, I'm not very vocal about politics, I really couldn't care less. Uh, but the one thing I am very vocal about is, is freedom of speech um, and allowing people to have the opinions that they have as long as they're not inflicting harm upon other people. I think it's important to have a diverse and, you know, um, vibrant uh, pool of opinions. I think that's one of the greatest things of living in the world that we live in. Um, however, I've never really been a fan of individuals going to others and, and using their knowledge and education as a stick to beat others with. Um, and I, I don't think that's the right way of doing it. And I think that's why I found your particular let's call it documentation um of your 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 travels your experiences your um your relationships with these people uh so endearing um it's because it 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 made no judgments upon myself as the reader and invited me in to kind of learn and understand and what you kind of did near the end is it you allowed the culture and the language to follow a course of nature that allows it to fizzle with dignity. I guess that's how I kind of, you know, saw it. And I, I had tremendous amount of respect for that. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. There's, there's one thing, oh my God, the world needs this language. The world doesn't need this language. But you also recognize that it's sad that this language has to kind of go down this path, but nature will take its course. Um, and I thought that was genuinely, genuinely fascinating. Thank you. It's, uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I mean, you, I, I'm, I'm really delighted to hear that you've got that because that is really what the intention was. I think that the, the, where, I, where I'm coming is that, that nature takes its course. This isn't nature. This isn't about nature. This is about politics. This is about social structures. And this is one of the things, this is one of my objections to the discourse on dying languages, which people get in The Guardian, for example. I usually have something once every three months. Mm about how you know languages are like it's like nature it's like flowers it's like butterflies it's the biosphere we're killing the biosphere languages are not nature 
Languages mm. are creations of people, and people exist in social, political, economic, religious contexts, which are changing. So I think, personally, the best way of thinking about language death is not to see it as a natural phenomenon, and not to compare it to the virus what's happening about with flowers and plants and animals. I think the best way to see it is to compare it to political movements and mm. politics, which, which you know, sometimes politics, sometimes political movements are killed by other political movements, but people mm. you know, who, who are at their forefront are actually murdered. That sometimes happens to speakers of languages. Uh, you know, things rise, things fall, but it's not about nature. It's about the, the vicissitudes of people and, and history and people mm. making history. So I think that one of the messages of the book that I really want to emphasize is that what I want to do with, with to understand language death is to very much not see it in terms of the natural environment. I want to see any any kind of language practice, but Hi, Don. I'm so sorry about yes. that. No, hang on That's one okay. second. Apologies. Sure, sure. No, don't worry. I actually just realised what happened. Yeah, sorry about that. No, so I think that that's the best is to not see it as, as, a, as a phenomenon of nature and compare it to you know, flowers and trees and, and, and animals, but to actually see it as a consequence of history, a consequence of people's actions in political context, in economic context, to see these things as a result of, you know, things like Christianity, capitalism, and to understand that. And I, because I think that to see, to, to see language death as a, as a consequence or as related or as understandable through um, the biosphere, mm. it kind of lets people off the hook. Again, I think that, you know, we now understand that what's happening in the biosphere is also <laughs> of course, a consequence of people screwing it up through things like capitalism and colonialism. Mm. Um, so again, it's all related, but I do think that it's important to see language as something very, very intensely human and, and subject to human thought, to human strategies, to human tactics, um, and to human desires. And those things are not natural in the way that a tree is natural amazing amazing you know don i would i'd love to actually have you on again because there are there are a few kind of specificities at the uh, about the book and i'd love to uh, pick your brain on it and perhaps we could do a, a another episode about this because there's there's one thing in particular i found fascinating was the gender dynamics of how they formed their their language um, you know, about things like how women are allowed to use profanities, men are not. And I, I thought that was fascinating. And uh, I'd love to actually, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and I'd love to have you on again, actually, and potentially go into a bit more detail in this, if that's good with you. Uh, absolutely. I, absolutely. By all means, my pleasure. Amazing. Well, Don, it's been my absolute pleasure to talk to you. Truly, it's been um you know, I have to say, if there was a way for me to start the new year off in the best way possible, it was to have a conversation with you. So thank you so much oh, for your time. Yes. I love that. Thank you very much. You're very sweet. Thank you. So yeah, thank, you. Thank, been mine. thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. And buy the book. Um, Absolutely. As much, <laughs> as much as Omar has enjoyed it.
Um, so yeah, well, thank you.